You're listening to 94.1 or 89.3 KPFB in in Berkeley or KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next is Cover to Cover, Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. We have a previously aired show. Jennifer is extending her vacation a little bit. She'll be back next week. Get ready for Now It Is Today. Thanks for listening. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Jennifer Stone with a reading from my earliest collection of stories, a book titled Over by the Caves, first published in 1977. Each of the stories in this book was published alone, but together they form a kind of hopscotch pattern. Some token or fragment or thread uh, is thrown from one story into the next. I think that... This time I will take the last story uh, in the book, which is called Now It Is Today. It's dated almost 30 years ago, winter 1974. I, Teresa Timeless, cannot get up in the morning. I have two sons and three lovers And still, I do not get up in the morning. Friday morning, I got up because the telephone rang. It was my son, Sam, calling from his high school. They wouldn't let him in without an excuse. I told old Miss Stopwatch, the attendance person, I told her Sam overslept. She said that was all very well, but she would appreciate it if I would put that in writing and get a note to her on Monday. I don't know how the hell Sam even manages to get to school before seven every morning. Simon, my younger son, goes sometime around noon. Split sessions. Oh, I never have the apartment to myself, which is fairly gruesome. I cannot even take a nap, which is another reason I cannot get up in the morning. I had a class in college once. In 1954, and it was supposed to start at 8 in the morning. I can't even remember the subject. Anyway, after the phone call, I took some Valium and went back to bed. Simon crawled out to the kitchen, made me a cup of coffee. 
He's 12 and he can cope, but he'd rather not. He mostly sings old World War II songs. He carves little wooden boats. He sings about slow boats to China. Friday morning he kept singing over and over. I shot the sheriff. I did not shoot the deputy. He brings me lukewarm coffee, tells me to get my butt out of that bed and ride the B-A-R-T to eternity for Lord's sake. I tell him to shut his face, fix the muffins. Get some marmalade, he says. Breakfast is El Barfo as far as he is concerned and as for me. I eat too much anyway and am getting to look like the great white whale. Free association is our downfall. He gives me about two inches of fresh squeezed orange juice. Simon loves to squeeze oranges. I tell him this is doubtless a sublimation. These are the only ways we know to express our love. I suppose we are practicing for the time when love may really turn to loathing. Sam says this is inevitable. No escape, fate, destiny, retribution, and so forth. Sam is 15, almost. He is a football player and all that stuff. Pop Warner yet. I suspect that somewhere deep in my subscript, I must have a faith or reverence for the warrior. My sons are equally divided at this point. Sam is a conquering hero and Simon a suffering martyr. Adolescents are mainly confined to these two roles. Like the bourgeois and the beatnik, they are perhaps two sides of the same coin. Sam says he had a feudal father, a Marxist mother, a bourgeois brother, and, symbolically speaking, a sexist sister. He says he is planning a strategic retreat. He won't say where. He looked at me hard the other night, leaned over and said, You are not what I mean. You are not what I mean at all. His English teacher says he is a troublemaker. I, Teresa Timeless, was once upon a time an English teacher, but that was here in America, and so it could not be. It was around the time of the War of the Words called by certain local journalists the Free Speech Movement. My students were black and blue. Nothing I knew about language or freedom was of any use to them. I admitted it, oh, I took these courses in African literature and African history, and I hung out with the underground at Merritt College in Oakland before it was raped. But I was only a missionary. I thought I had the power and privilege of a white man and the compassion of a black woman, but I was a fossil and a female fossil at that. 
In my classroom, I suggested we divide into groups. It was the fashion then, I suggested. Three groups. Martyrdom, sabotage, and those who stand and wait. The principal caught us. He nailed the desks to the floor facing front. He took down the posters, and he asked, Who was this Paul Roberson, anyway? The principal was a rather large black man who used to play for the Redskins or the Rednecks or one of those teams. He got a report from a student saying that I had used the word black in the classroom. This was in 1968. He told me that the students were too young to understand. Then he heard one of my students talking about African heritage, and he called me in to show me the reading scores of all the public schools in the United States and just how my students rated. After I slammed the door to his office, he said I was emotionally unstable. My students asked me, how come their black teachers didn't teach any of that black poetry and stuff? And how come I was so interested in black culture? Did I want to be black? The black teacher said the students couldn't handle freedom and my skirts were too short. Even the teachers' union, when I got called downtown to meet the man at the administration building, even the union advisor, he told me, dress Republican. Then one day Roosevelt Jefferson said to me, What can you give me? Can you give me money? Roosevelt's right, of course. Money is all that matters if you haven't got it. After the revolution of 1969, I lurched into mysticism. I took a can of spray paint and wrote on the walls, To think you can be rich and not act rich is to think you can be blind and not act blind. Oscar Wilde said that, anyway. I had no money. I got a small job typing for some psychiatrists then, bughousers of the old school. The best of it is that now I don't go to work until noon. That's the thing. I, I miss the school, but... I might get up in the mornings if there was something going on. I mean, if I had a train to catch. I mean, a real train that was going somewhere. Time lag, perhaps? Time warp? You can't catch a jet plane like you can a freight train. I am slowing down a lot. I need a passion to get me going again, but now always I am tired without fatigue. Psychiatrists call it depression. I call it being discouraged. Oh, yes, the ultimate ambiguity of all human endeavor. I think it's not important what anyone calls it. It's here. 
It won't go away, and it's not just for me. It's the psychic depression of decadence that has come to this place and time. It is what happens to a people who ignore their artists and deny their children. It is a terminal case of involutional melancholia, which comes from within and cannot be cured by TV or psychotherapy or anything but a creative life, which is hard to come by in a country where it doesn't pay to do anything for yourself. I, Teresa Timeless, know there is no time but political time and no life but political life, but I pretend. I pretend I can escape into subjective life, build my own internal spiritual world. I have traded my sense of sin for a sense of drift. Sign of the times. I take the B-A-R-T, the BART subway, to the cafe of the Golden Calf. I drink my morning coffee with other time travelers. It's almost 10.30. Still, I cannot seem to wake up. On the wall is written the ballad of the Golden Calf. Orange trees in Eden, give us this day our daily dread. Terror in the waiting room, all of us jive time. All of us babes of the bathwater. Tangled in Ophelia's damned willow weeds, worn to drown. Listen to her coffeehouse confession with those vine leaves in her hair. The dark was light enough for dreams. We crucified the royal opposition, put Alice on the throne, face to face, darkly through the glass, face to face. Humpty Dumpty, not even capable of disillusion, falling, falling, bleeding on the blueprints, blood-blown friend of Puff the Magic Dragon. Livid by the sea and some LSD. There is rain now. The faces of the people with their eyes like gunshot wounds. A black Bolshevik reads to me from the newspapers. Eldridge Cleaver wants to come home again. Cleaver is sick of Paris. Sick of poverty and his wife and two kids. He wants the money from his book, Soul on Ice. He wants all this bourgeois bunk we've got in Berkeley. He wants to be an armchair philosopher of the left. He's 39 and wants to quit. The black Bolshevik gets a little maudlin. I join in and say, hell, who cares who killed Bobby Hutton? He was only 17. The teachers at my school said he was a dropout. Hmm. His little kid sister... Went to my school. She only got a C in eighth grade English. What can you expect? Bobby wouldn't take his shorts off. All the other Black Panthers stripped stark. But he kept his shorts on. So the police blew him up to heaven because he might have had a gun in his shorts. Eldridge Cleaver stayed on earth. Stark naked. 
The Bolshevik says, What the hell am I on anyway? And his friend at the next table says, I am always talking about dark meat. So it is easy to see what I am after. I look out the window, the window of the Café Mediterranean. I look at the rain and the street people and the trees. The last time Simon came home from a week in the mountains, I found him weeping. He yelled at me. He told me he wasn't crying, and I had to cry too to get him to admit he was crying, and he was crying, he said, because of the streets. I ask these men in the coffee house why we do not plant fruit trees in the streets. And what about this movement to turn lawns into vegetable gardens? And I keep trying to turn the conversation in this direction, thinking of Simon weeping like that, but it's no use. The talk turns again to my alabaster ass and to the limits of my libido. Even the Bolsheviks, says... That's where it's at, all right. That's what all this women's lib is about. Their libidos have been liberated. And we just can't come up to it, man. I give up. I confess that men are undersexed. That seems to be what they want to hear. Sexism is more confusing than racism. Always the oppressor hates the oppressed. It is the master hates the slave. I ask an old mulatto what it is we are talking about anyhow. He says women still love their oppressors, and that's certainly no way out. What shall we love then, I ask him. Well, he tells me you could love yourself. You could love your children. Who do you love, I ask him. I am an old mule, he says, the offspring of a white jackass and a black mare. I am a colored man. I love God. But what about sex, I ask him. What about it, he says. But I must love a man, I tell him. What's that got to do with sex, he says. I can see across the street a boarded building near the bookstore. There's spray can graffiti there. And in the middle there, in the red letters, is painted the word, Enjoy! Hmm, with nine exclamation points, it occurs to me that I cannot talk with these men. I don't know how. I go outside. I visit the shops. I buy a three-dollar print of The Rhine Maidens. It's a dark and swirling illustration from uh, Siegfried, drawn by the 19th century uh, illustrator Arthur Rackham. Carl Jung used it, uses it in his book about symbols. He calls it a frightening anima picture, the woman within. I'll give it to Sam for his 15th birthday. Yes, I remember Arthur Rackham's dark sea maidens with their long wet seaweed hair. 
In my childhood copy of the story of the Little Mermaid, Hans Christian Andersen's Mermaid, whose very soul depended upon getting the love of the prince. I remember the Gothic drawings of the mermaid's sea-laced sisters, the fatal sirens of the sea, reaching up from the waves and calling out to the mermaid to come home to them. They offer her a knife with which to kill the prince. But the little mermaid had taken a magic potion from the sea witch, which cut her tail in two and made her a mortal woman capable of real love. So, rather than kill the prince, she nearly turned to sea foam. Which, which indeed, yes, death and the maiden will be proper gifts for Sam. Mm, one thing, he'll never be a sailor. Mm. Once I read him Matthew Arnold's poem, The Forsaken Merman. Sam said, no way, but no way. Could a woman turn human and not take the children with her? Custody is destiny. I find another coffee house. I find a woman who lives in a gypsy camp. I ask her if she has seen Tanya or any of that crowd. She says, oh, you mean Rosebud. I say, no, I'm not talking about Miss anymore. I'm interested in knowing if we may hope for a hard hat revolution soon, as I am tired of waiting around. Let him eat Hearst patties, she says. She presses my hand and tells me to go home and cultivate my garden. <laughs> By one o'clock, I'm sitting behind my electric typewriter, turning out progress notes on mental patience. Yes. There's a direct transcription of an interview with an office patient. I privately titled it Frigidity Made Simple or Send the Bill to D.H. Lawrence. It is the voice of a young woman, complaintive and pleading. For Christ's sakes, doctor, he had his damn bonsai tree in the bathtub when I got there. I had to hold a paper bag for the trimmings. When the bag was full, he sent me out to the garbage to dump the twigs and stuff. He told me to remember to bring back the bag that night in bed with him. I dreamt he was standing behind me in the lineup at the bank. As I was trying to write out my life anyway, I think it was my life, on wooden ice cream spoons or popsicle sticks. He pushed me out of line before I could cash them in. At breakfast, I asked him why we never went anywhere together anymore. He said, who the hell did I think I was all the time? Joan Crawford, for God's sakes. I said, I thought I was Sappho at Stonehenge. And he said, who needs it? By six o'clock, I'm sitting in a small Italian pizzeria with Jake. My primary lover, primary or primal, or primordial anyway. The one most likely to succeed, I ask for plenty of wine. I drink in order to stay self-centered. With males, I have to be very careful not to lose myself. We start to argue about Tennessee Williams' play, Orpheus Descending. The argument begins as I am imitating Anna Magnani in The Fugitive Kind, the film made from the play. 
in the vine garden of my father and so on. I'm saying that both the play and the film are uh, Tennessee Williams' best. Jake is saying no to Tennessee Williams and yes to Faulkner. I am raving that Faulkner is mistaken. And artists may be great or small, but they must not be mistaken. And Shakespeare was not mistaken. And J.D. Salinger was not prolific, but neither was he mistaken. And Faulkner and his Black Christ are productions of a very personal, private, and deranged imagination. And while bizarre and curious, they are simply not true. Not true for who, yells Jake. Well, Jake is a horse of a different color, and when he gets hold of an idea, it becomes obsessional. I tell him he is a walking antique, an anachronism. He says maybe so, but it's not his fault, as he was raised in the black ghetto in Los Angeles. I tell him everyone was raised in a ghetto. I have with me a copy of Anais Nin's book, The Novel of the Future. Jake pulls it out, flicks through it, and finally mutters, Oh, yeah, one of Henry Miller's broads. He pauses long enough to glare at the waitress. He is just black enough to demand prompt service. I tell him waitresses are oppressed. He should leave her alone. He considers this. Then he speaks sincerely. If you are so interested in women's lib and women writers, why don't you read Caitlin Thomas? You mean Leftover Life to Kill, I ask? Yes, that's the one, he says. There wasn't any. Any what? Life left over, I tell him. No life after Dylan died. Then I have another glass of wine and tell Jake I am only involved with those women who have transcended the bourgeois love ethic and no longer throw themselves on their husbands or lovers' funeral pyres. Even Dorothy Parker gives me a pain, I tell him, even Sylvia Plath. Then I get belligerent and tell him he's phallocentric and can only see women as they mirror men. We can't get out of your imaginations, I yell. We don't know what's real. We're underwater most of the time. How in hell can the fish tell if it's snowing, I yell. Why should they care, he answers. Why indeed. <laughs> well, my love, I say it's not your fault. You live in a vault. It's not your fault. You personalize everything and have no objectivity or sense of justice, you seething Paranoid, dumb buck, you cannot get hold of the broad overview. Only the androgynous mind can grasp the whole. Gertrude Stein could see the whole thing at a glance. That's why she always lived in France. That old covered wagon, Jake quotes someone. A head like Stonehenge, I quote someone else. We go on and on in this way until the pizza is gone. And the wine bottle is empty, of course. It is Miss Stein who said somewhere that growing old is knowing that no one can ever be agreeing with you completely. So I guess Jake is still young in his heart. Always he tells me what to think. Always he insists I agree with him. Which is why I'm so fond of him and why he gives me such an awful headache. It is for this reason, the headache I mean, that I am likely to slip away before morning... Sometimes I drive to the marina and park by the pier before it is light. I scribble in my notebook, watch the sun rise, 
Look at the haze around the gray gold gate of San Francisco. I remember the first morning I came to this city. It looked like Oz. The blue and white sea and the city glistened in a diamond dream. When we first moved back here from suburbia, Sam and Simon and I, I took Simon for a walk on the pier. He was only five. Frumpy seagulls were lined up in regular sets on either side of the pier. Simon ran along calling recess and watched them all fly away. Then he went up to a man, baiting a hook. He looked at the fish gasping at the man's feet and told the man his fish was dying, and the man agreed. When I don't feel like going to the sea, I find a truck stop that's nearly empty. I sit over coffee and listen to the men who drive all night. Ah,、uh, I suppose. I suppose. I'm looking for a symbol, a theme. When I studied Carl Jung, I thought I was looking for my idealized other self. I'm not sure just now. Anyway, I've got a statue of the the prince, the one that fell from the ship, the one. That the Little Mermaid didn't kill. The ship sank in a storm many years ago, and I've got the statue here now in my bedroom garden. And sometimes in the mornings and late at night, I cover it with old socks and topless bras and odd earrings with the history, and sometimes with ashes of roses and garlands and sequins and spray paint.